Say your last name for me. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education interview series. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2009, and our guests tonight are Judy Fusco and Patty Shank from SRI, with our special guest tonight, B.J. Berquist. We're certainly glad to have you here. This interview series is sponsored by Illuminate and by the uh, Learn Central Social Network uh, project that I'm working on. Uh, we'll obviously have time to talk about that tonight, or maybe we won't, but uh, it's certainly apropos. And if you um, wouldn't mind uh, looking at LearnCentral.org, it helps me because this is a project that I'm very passionately interested in and having it improve and get better and meet your needs. Coming up on our interview series tomorrow night, Esther Lisiski, a journalism English teacher at Palo Alto High School, who's also the current board chair of Creative Commons. Uh, on November 2nd, Michael Horn, co-author of Disrupting Class, is going to look at the Florida Virtual School project. November 3rd, a fun interview with Tim Westergren, the founder of Pandora, talk about music, copyright, or yeah, music, copyright changes in ownership laws and how we how technology is changing the ways that we listen to music. Henry Jenkins and lots more you can see there. And this slide will come up at the very end so you don't have to copy it all down now. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I wanted to give you a brief tour of the environment. Uh, you are looking at a participant window in the top left. Uh, you can see who's here in the session. Below that window are some ways to interact. This is an interactive program. We're hoping you're going to interact tonight. You can see the smiley face, the clapping hand, the confused face, and the thumbs down. I'm going to click on the smiley face so you can see what happens when you click on one of those emoticons. If you think you'd like to ask a question using the mic, you can use that hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand. That's a way of indicating that you want to speak, and we'll give you the microphone. If you think that you might want to do that, please do go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your mic is configured correctly. Below the participant window, you can see a, a box for sending messages. That uh, chat can go by very fast. And um, if you send a chat to another member of the group that you think is private, do be aware that those of us who are moderators actually see those, so nothing's fully private. Um, and then below, obviously, is the audio area, and that's the microphone button that we ask you to click on if you're going to talk. Now, I like the chat quite a bit, and it's hard for me when it flies by very quickly. So if you'd like, go up to View Layouts and select the Wide Layout, and you'll find it's a little bit better for following the chat discussion. Now, to the right is the whiteboard, and I'm going to give you all permissions to modify that whiteboard and to let us know where you're listening from. You can also type it in the chat, maybe where you are in the time and the temperature. But if you click on the wand with the red star at the end and then click on the map, it'll give us an idea of where you're listening from. Hey, Australia. I love that. It looks like maybe China. Wouldn't that be fun? Someone else from Sacramento. Good. We're a small crowd, but high international representation so far. Okay, so I'm going to move us to the next slide. This is a really fun night for me. You know, I've talked to Judy and Patty several times. Uh, a lot of confluence of interest. Um, obviously, the project I'm working on, Martin Central, uh, you know, very closely associated in concept with the kinds of things that, uh, that Judy and Patty have been doing with Tapped In. And I foresee a, a great future ahead of conversations in this regard. Um, I've, I've called this session variously different names, uh, but I'm, I tried tonight to include everything that I thought was important. And Judy and Patty are going to help us actually understand some of the, the phrasing a little bit better because I don't come from the background, the research background that they have, and they have a better understanding than I do of what's a community of practice and what's a social network. So tonight it's tapped in, educational networking, community of practices, and more. And, and Judy and Patty will get to, to give us some more. So um, I'm going to turn the time over to the two of you. I have a set of questions. 
that we worked on. Uh, if it's okay, why don't you each say hi and give a little bit of your background before we jump in. Hi, this is Judy. Um, my background, about 13 years ago, I started creating online communities um, at Apple Computer. I was there and working with kids who were sick or had a disability. Uh, I was fresh out of grad school, um, and online communities were a brand new thing. Um, well, not really, because we have Howard Rheingold um, doing it for you know 10 or 15 years before then. But it was the um, you know mainstream, the brand new mainstream thing. Um, so I worked a lot with um, psychology. I'm a psychologist by training, and I worked a lot with clinical psychologists and doctors to help create this community for kids who are sick or had a disability. It was a very powerful experience. Um, I still think about many days there. It was only a year-long experience, but really touched and changed my life, and I saw the power of community. Um, I came to SRI to work with teachers, and I'd always wanted to work and be a teacher myself. Um, you don't go to grad school forever thinking that you don't like school, and <laughs> um, I, I loved my teachers. I wanted to be one, and I ended up developing community for teachers um, instead of being a teacher. And along the way, I've gotten to teach a few classes here and there, best experiences of my life. Um, and we we started tapped in Patty um, and myself and another member um, Mark Schlager who's not here. BJ joined us very shortly thereafter, the beginning in like 19. She joined us in like 1998, I think, or 97 even. Um, we started it in 96. Um, yeah. I wasn't here until 97. Um, so I'm going to let Patty talk for a moment. Okay, I guess I'm, I'm going to just I'm gonna come over and use your mic. Um, so I'm Patty Shank, and actually my background is more in software design and development. And um, I think the funny thing is that I came to SRI in 1995, fresh out of graduate school, and I had done a lot of work in um, individual reasoning. I hadn't actually done much work at all in collaboration or community. And uh, when I came to SRI, Mark Schlager um, was my supervisor, and there were like five people in the Center for Technology and Learning. And you know, we had this idea, really Mark had this idea to start to, to create an online community for teachers. And so I was the developer. I was the, the techie that helped design and develop it from the, in the beginning. And uh, we built something originally in a, in a MOO, an online, a text-based uh, environment. And uh, we built it, and they didn't come. And then Judy came, <laughs> and she made she made it come alive. And so she's been our our wonderful community director for a uh, long time now. Um, so, but I, I have been involved in um, more of the kind of design. We we completely redesigned the environment in uh, the early 2000s and rebuilt it. And uh, you know, I pretty much led that that effort with wonderful input from everybody else on the team. Very much a collaborative effort. Pretty much everything about Tapped In is a collaborative effort. Um, no one feels like they should take any credit <laughs> for um, you know, Tapped In because it was a large community effort. And you know, it started a long time ago. Um, thank you for putting up the, the home page of Tapped In. Um, we're, still, we're still going. Um, BJ will probably tell us a little bit about, and we should have BJ introduce herself too. Um, we, BJ will probably tell us a little bit about um, what all exciting things are happening and tapped in right now today. But um, I think that some of what we were going to talk about too was a little bit higher level um, thinking about community, social networking, and um, what community brings to the learning process. Um, as well as other issues, so um, we don't want to make it just about tapped in. But obviously, we have a lot of tapped in stories to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want them all. BJ, do you want to quickly say hi and, and do the same kind of background for yourself? And we're not getting your audio again, BJ. Gosh, I wonder if you're uh, going to be able to come through. Oh, that's too bad. You can, you, if you'd like, you can call in on the telephone line, and uh, you'll see down in the audio box where you click to click on that microphone. To the right of that is a little handset icon, and I'm going to unmute the phone bridge. If you'd like to dial in, it's an 800 number, 
and it'll give you the number to dial in, and then you can come in through the telephone, and we'll wait for you. Um, I'll go ahead and, and start, but when you come back, we'll um, have you introduce yourself. So I'm going to put up in the web tour the set of readings that you, the papers and presentations that you get if you click on the publications link and tapped in. And I've got to say, I only read, and to say that I read is even an exaggeration, but I spent significant time with five of the documents. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, my brain hurt when I was done. So much really great information. Uh, and, and, and such a categorization of thoughts that, that were flying around in my head that I hadn't fully uh, articulated in the way that you have. So do you want, Judy or Patty, do you want to point out any there that are worth people looking at in particular? Well, it really depends on what their purposes are. And that's going to be my answer tonight the <laughs> entire time. Really, you know, what is it about the community that you're wanting to understand? Um, I think if you're thinking of designing your own community, the Cook and Fusco paper, 2008, is an excellent one. Um, if you want to hear about, you know, all of our evolution of Tapped In, the evolution of an online community is an excellent one. Um, we also documented a lot of just what could happen early on. We were thinking about, you know, what, what are some of the impacts we're seeing in our community and, and you know, so really, yeah. I, I can't recommend just one. I think, and going back to designing, if you kind of want ideas of you know, technical infrastructure to to help support the community as it's growing and get feedback. That would be the the Faroque et al. paper, 2007. But um, and maybe later tonight we'll also get to uh, the very the, the paper at the top that's talking about now you've got all these activities going on online. How can you actually see if they're having an impact? How can you analyze the data that's available on what people are doing and learn from it and make people's interactions even more productive. That's kind of what the very Schlager in press, actually it's 2009 now, that's kind of what that paper talks about. And that's where our thinking is, that's where most of our energy is going right now in mm -hmm. terms of thinking. So um, Beak is on the phone it looks like. Hi BJ, can you hear us? I certainly can, can you hear me? We can, I'm going to try and turn your volume up while you go, but go ahead. Okay. Um, I've been associated with Tapped In since 1998, and I kind of stumbled into the community uh, through another educator. And since then, I have my whole world has opened up. Um, I met Judy, and I met Patty, and I've met people virtually from all over the world. I even had the opportunity to meet you, Steve. Um, which was very exciting. Uh, the, the members of the community are what make Tapped In, or they are also what makes any community, I think. Um, how the, the members collaborate, how they interact, how they um, support each other, they provide professional development uh, to each other, they learn from each other, and that is is the most important thing I think that that any social community or any social thing uh, can provide. Okay, so thanks, BJ. Really glad to have you here. I will say you mentioned the Cock and Fusco. Is it Coke? Cock? Cook. Uh, Cook. There, there I go. Uh, for the last name Hargan, I'm making a mistake again. But designing for growth, I thought, was um, very accessible to me and very relevant in, in, in the current circumstance. And I really liked the cart before the horse uh, paper, the Schlieger and Fusco one, because I thought that was uh, also sort of relevant to me at the time. I will say that the most recent one dove so deeply into the kind of research things that you're doing that that was hard for me because I'm not, I, you know, I don't operate in that world. But um, we'll give it a try again. So I don't, I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves, but I did want to mention a couple of things that occurred to me from the reading before we sort of start the, uh, the questions that we had uh, described. One was this principle of not designing, but designing for. I thought that was really brilliant. Do you want to uh, just describe how that's related to the kinds of things you saw at Tapped In? 
Well, as I, you know, when you asked me to recommend a paper, I said, well, you know, what is the purpose? What I can't make any recommendation to a person or to a community or to an organization until I better understand what their purposes are. Um, and we did that in all phases of our design. When we redesigned Tapped In in 2001, we brought everybody together. Um, well, not everybody, not not all 20,000 members, <laughs> but we brought representatives from um, our community, many different stakeholder representatives, um, to tell us what kinds of scenarios they would be bringing into our system so that we could better support that. And you know, I really believe that the social part has to be supported in very specific ways depending on the situation. And your technology needs you know, have to be supported as well. And we try to blend the two and provide the support for all of it in the community. Um, tapped In's community technology is now getting um, somewhat old in terms of internet years. I think it's you know, 400 years old or something. <laughs> pre -web 2 .0. Right, it's pre-web 2.0. Right, it's pre-web 2.0. As I said, we designed it in 2001 and built it in 2002. Patty built it. I didn't. Well, with <laughs> help from a couple of other people. As I said, we're we're very much a team here. Um, so, um, once again, I, I forgot what your question was. Designing for. Yeah. So designing for. I mean, that's that's just the philosophy that we hold. Um, you know, you. I don't think you can give something to somebody. I think you have to negotiate what what it is you're you know, handing to them um, in all situations. Patty, did you want to add anything? Oh, I, I was just going to say, you know, for people that develop software, the, one of the jargony terms is user-centered, participatory. I mean, it's it's the fact that it's not like we know everything. We really, really strongly rely on the people we're um, trying to serve and trying to support to find out from them what they need. And um, you know, we also try to use the environment ourselves to <laughs> So I mean, you know, we don't profess to know everything and we, we learn from um, our community members what they need and try to meet those needs. So I really heard that message and and you're giving it again. And I I also heard the message that it's really important, or at least you feel it's important, to look for existing communities of practice, local communities of practice, and bring them to the tool set rather than starting from scratch. Is that an accurate appraisal of what you said? Um, well, so I, I mean, I think that it's important to never start from scratch if you don't have to. Um, leverage, very bootstrap, leverage. Um, when you start from scratch, you know you have a blank piece of paper. When you start writing and you're starting with a blank piece of paper, it's really painful. When you start a community with no one there, it's just you kind of saying, "Yippee, let's let's do something," and, and, and nobody's there to, you know, play with you. Play for you play used in a very broad sense. Um, so when you have people who are receptive to the idea, they will help you with the community development. Um, and if you have people who are already using technology to make things happen, that's even better. Um, you know, your job as a community developer gets easier and easier. And you know, I'm kind of lazy, I think. <laughs> I want to make things as easy as possible. So does tapped in come from TPD, teacher professional development? Yes, it does. Okay, so one of the stories that you tell in one of the papers is about the difficulty of professional development for the profession of teachers. Would that be a good place for us to kind of start drilling down? Do you want to tell that story? I think you use Maria as the example of the of the either right. the teacher or the office worker. Sure, I can I can try to make up a story. I'm not sure if I'll tell the same exact one, but Maria doesn't have. Um, any connectivity in our classroom. And before I get started, I wanted to ask, how many teachers do we have here in the audience? So let's do this. If you are a teacher, click on the green check mark at the bottom of the participant box. And if you're not a teacher, click on the red X. Can we do one more fun poll because this is great? <laughs> we can do as many polls as you would like. Um, how many people are aware? Oh yeah, if, if, yeah. We'll let everybody click and keep their clicks there for a second, so we can 
count and you have some people who are not clicking. I don't know if they're having problems or stepped away for a moment. Or maybe half teachers. Right. So the other question I have is how many people are aware of the painful problems associated with teacher professional development? And we'll say if you are aware of the green check mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so pretty much most people are aware of all of the pain associated with teacher professional development. So Judy can say something about it and you can add. <laughs> right, yeah, no, so I'll, I, as I said, I was lazy, so I'm going to ask you to, you know, help me with my talk here. Um, yeah, so if you're just, a, you know, the situation in, in professional development is pretty dismal. Um, there's never enough time. There's never enough time for anything in this life, though. Life is too short. Um, there's never enough money for teacher professional development. Teachers also don't often get the time to um, really invest heavily because a lot of things are um, teacher professional development of the day and tomorrow it's going to change. Have, who, of those of you who are teachers or have been a teacher, have you experienced we're doing this today and tomorrow we're focusing on this? So right, or check the box or raise your hand if you've experienced just the shifting winds of, um, you know, what am I doing today? So we were hoping with tapped in, what is it? Yeah, and, and the other thing is um, how many teachers get the opportunity to really learn with another teacher or another professional um, when you're being asked to, to learn? I see one green check of somebody who gets to learn with somebody else. That's great. <laughs> and then there's a red. <laughs> um, or, or when you, you know, you do have an opportunity in a workshop, and then you go back to the school, and you know, how do you follow up? You don't, maybe you don't have many or any people really nearby to go, kind of say, hey, you know what? I'm trying to apply this thing we learned, and I'm stuck. And you know, there's, it's just not so easy to, to do that. Right. Compare, so, compare that to most any other profession. You know, if you're a software developer, you're working with other software developers. If you're a lawyer, you've got lawyers all around you. <laughs> or, you know, it's just it's just pretty different. Because teachers specialize so much, I mean, you may not be able to go talk to the math teacher if you're an English teacher right. and, and get as much help. And Steve's making a great point in the chat. chat. Um, there sometimes isn't the same level of commitment. The folks who are here tonight are the committed folks, you know, and maybe we should all be committed and walked away, but <laughs> that's a different talk, I think. Um, but we need to make sure we exactly, Kim, you got my joke. Um, <laughs> I was trying to make the joke. I'm not sure if it came through. Um, but we are, I mean, I think everybody here is aware that TPD is a very painful place. And we wrote about it 10 or 12 years ago, maybe even a little bit, you know, about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and it's, it's still a problem. You know, there have been pockets of success and places where teachers get get continuity and um, you know long-term um, work in an area, but mostly it continues in schools to be isolated, um, one-shot deals. I've seen all these words up there, um, and you know we hoped that Tapped In when we created Tapped In would be a place where people could be lifelong learners, and it doesn't have to be Tapped In. Any community that can support you over time is like like Learn Central, I'll do an ad for you, Steve, <laughs> um, is, is important. And you need to find a community where you are happy, where you feel comfortable, and that, are, that is doing what you need. Um, I'll also make a, you know, ad for Tapped In. Go Tapped In. So um, I'm not sure if I told the Maria story, but basically TPD, yeah, it's, there's horrible problems. Okay, so I'm. Uh, uh, really re that really resonated with me, and I really felt uh, some understanding of the issue. Now, maybe I understood that sort of intuitively before, but was really appreciative of the, the, that description. So, go from there to, to helping us understand uh, what a community practice is, how that's different from a social networking, kind of how you divide this world of these kinds of activities. Sure. Um. So when I was thinking about the difference between social networking and community, 
I do most of my thinking in the world of community. But, and, and there's a huge overlap between social networking and community. It's not an either or thing. Um, but basically, I, I tend to think of social networking as more of an activity than it, that an individual pursues for themselves. Um, community is a group. Um, and we recently did um, a survey of nine online communities with different education organizations. We did that this summer. And when we kind of had them talking about their online communities, we basically got nine different definitions of what an online community was. So we, um, uh, and Steve put up a question in the text that distracted me, so I'm going to actually continue with my thought and then I'll get to that. Um, so I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of what what all the nine different um, types of community was, but I did pull up how we kind of grouped our nine definitions into three types of community. And we can talk about um, how I think about three levels of community activities, or three levels of community that have different kinds of activities common to them. Um, I don't know if you can take us to that, Steve, if you want to go there. We can put it up and we may or may not talk about it right now. Um, and it's a slide, or I sent it to you. Did you get that text, Steve? Is it the one that's up on the whiteboard now? Um, I see the captain. Oh, maybe if I close that window. Let me see. Yes, it's that one. Um, so basically, we find that three types of community um, can kind of explain ways to think about community pretty nicely. So. In some cases, a community of users exists for an organization. And it's a very low cost um, way to have a community. Um, it's often that the organization is just pushing things out to the community. It's used for marketing a lot. It's used to aggregate information about who your users are. Um, there may be a tiny bit of interaction among the users, but mostly it's kind of the organization to the users and the users yeah. back. Do you want to say, so we've talked about what are examples of that? Sure, if you want to give an example. Well, <laughs> I think we talked about Amazon. <laughs> we did talk about Amazon. Um, everybody, I think, is familiar with Amazon. Um, and Amazon does a lot of community of user. Um, they've gathered a lot of information based on your purchases, based on your browsing. Um, and they push things to you. They don't tend to email you, but when you go to their site, you get recommendations right there. And I don't know about you, but I can waste a lot of time on Amazon. Um, they do a very good job of pushing to me when I go there. Um, and then we get to the level of community of interest. And in a community of interest, it's really the interest that's driving the community. Um, there's interaction that's possible, but it's not necessarily required. People may or may not know each other. Um, one example, I'll give that to you so you can type it up there. One example is, as Patty and I talked, a community around um, maybe an illness. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to know a lot about your illness. You may then also form strong bonds with the folks, but it started because of this interest. Um, Amazon also has communities of interest in their reviews of products, reviews of books, and different um, I've, I've just stumbled into different areas in Amazon. It's like, wow, there's quite a, quite a community of interest here. But you know, the focus isn't necessarily on getting to know the other folks. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of examples of community of interest in the health field, I think. Well, there's a lot of examples of communities of interest on the web in general, yeah. just yeah. because it's a fairly low cost um, solution. Um, for people, for organizations to put up a discussion board. And if people want to come and interact with each other or just make a post, they don't even have to interact with each other. Um, so it's, it's fairly common to see. Most of the organizations we spoke with this summer were communities of interest. Um, a only a couple of them made it to approaching community of practice. And you know, in a community of practice, I have a couple of my former students out there, so um, I'm not going to give a full lecture on community of practice today. Um, but um, we have, or yeah, Patty's saying I should I should put my former students on the spot, but somehow I don't think that would be very nice. Um, James, do you want to be on the spot? 
<laughs> I think James is walking out of the room. Um, <laughs> so anyway, in the community of practice, you have very deep engagement. You have people who have very strong identities that are a significant part of their interaction. Um, it takes a lot of effort to create the conditions for a community of practice online. Um, I don't think you can create a community of, pra of practice. I think you have to create the conditions for the community of practice. Um, it takes the organization, uh, there's my, there's Terry. Oh good, I could put Terry on the spot. <laughs> so um, it takes more effort on the community developer's part and it costs more for the organization to create the community of practice. And that's why a lot of organizations fall short of community of practice. So would you, I'm going to ask Judy a question here. <laughs> would, you, would you say that in communities of practice people often have common goals, things to accomplish together, where in the community of interest they have common interests, but they may not have a common kind of goal, something to build together? So in the community of practice there's a common practice. Okay. Um, for example, teaching, mm -hmm. teaching and learning, all that surrounds schools. Um, and as Terry and James both know, it's very hard to achieve the um, status of community of practice. Um, and they, they're deeply engaged in their practice. They're deeply engaged in discussing their practice. Um, and um, it's, there's identity. There are members who are both experts and novices. Um, you're learning from one another. Um, and you want to have a nice blend for your community of practice. You don't want to just have experts and you don't want to just have novices. You want the range of experience so that people can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. So how does this relate to the phrase that you hear a lot now, a personal learning network? That's a great question. I've, I've, I mean, I can tell you how I think it relates, but I haven't actually um, thought about it before. Um, well, if you have a personal, I mean, I think a personal learning networks. What's an example of a personal learning network? Do you mean the people in it, or do you mean like technologies that support it? You know, I think the phrase gets used quite a bit now to describe the associations that you build uh, through a variety of tools with people who become part of your personal learning network. And it seems to me that it kind of combines both the community of interest and the community of practice to a degree but it's very self-driven. Well, I think that that's probably the big difference is that it's about you and what you need and the community of practice centers around the practice. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I mean, I, I had an idea of the answer when I asked the question, but I think it's definitely something that people talk about a lot right now. I guess I'm not in the right crowd because nobody's talked about it <laughs> around me. Um, so if you see a lot of mentoring or apprenticeship going on, would you would you more likely think that would fall in a community practice than a personal network? Not necessarily. I mean, I think it would it could fall in either. Mm -hmm. um, you would expect it to fall in um, a community of practice. I guess just because the word personal learning network is there, it seems that that really um, you know, puts the emphasis on the individual, um, and the community of practice is more around the large practice and the large community that surrounds the practice. Yes, and, and, and Terry's reminding me, knitters can be a community of practice. In fact, you know, we don't often see communities of practice within schools, um, and and it's also the case that community of practice is not always necessary to achieve. You may want to have, um, you may want to have a community of practice, but it may not make the most sense for your purposes. And that's what I always come back to: is what is the purpose between, um, or purpose for the community? And you know, that's that's my my theme today: is what's the purpose? Okay, so I think that's a really uh, uh, great sort of foundation for um, looking at uh, what what happened with what's happened so far with Tapped In, and with some of the lessons that you feel like you've learned. So could we kind of move in that direction? Sorry, I'm typing, and I will talk in one second. 
multitasking at its finest. Um, so that is what that that is where we started with Captain, and that is where we continue to go with Captain. Um, a community of practice continues to evolve over time based on the needs of the members. Um, when new people come into the community of practice, community of practice needs to be um, able to sustain itself and grow itself over time. Otherwise, it will die out, potentially. You need to have new people coming in, and you need to have new ideas coming in with those new people. You need to have challenges from the new people with the more experienced folks. I could say old timers, but um, it's an age thing that I'm <laughs> getting worried about. So um, we'll say the more experienced folks. Um, there's a tension that, that helps make um, communities work when you have new and old and, and that tension. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Exactly. Well, I kind of wanted to steer us in the direction of actually sort of looking at what you've learned about communities of practice through the work that tapped in. Yeah, so um, we, I mean, we can tell you, I can tell, you know, many experiences that we've seen online. Um, I'm just trying to, so one, I mean, one, um, Let's see. One community of practice that we saw develop over time um, was a large school district. Um, and we worked with them starting in 2002 and continued working with them for five years. Um, so they were trying to support, especially support, the practices of their new teachers to help with turnover. They wanted to keep their new teachers. It's a problem that's common in many places. Um, so we helped them learn, or we helped understand first, them understand you know, what might work online. Um, and they started with that particular population of new teachers. And the first year we started, um, and we had about 10 support groups for new teachers. Um, I, that's a question. Lisa's question is one for Steve. Sorry, I'm distracted <laughs> by the text. <laughs> um, we started uh, about 10 support groups for new teachers with about 10 new teachers and one or two experienced teachers in them. Um, we learned a lot back in 2002 as we started to develop these groups. We tried to pair mentors with teachers we thought that you know it made sense to pair them with. And then we realized, after we'd spent a lot of time in tearing out our hair, that it made a lot more sense to allow the members to select their own mentors. Um, it works a lot better. It's another example of just setting up the conditions and letting the community do what it needs to do. Um, so our second year with that large school district, um, the numbers of teachers more than doubled. Um, and they kept supporting their teachers online and tapped in for five years. And then they decided they had outgrown um, our spaces and moved on to their own space. So they were a great success story. They took a year to kind of learn the tricks, different things that would potentially support them. And we spent a lot of time, as we wrote up in the Cook and Fusco paper, um, building the capacity in the organization to then do it for themselves. And they wanted support their second year. And their third year and on, they really didn't need that much from us, nor did we want to have to support them. Because really, it has to come from the organization. That, I mean, they were the community. They knew what they needed to do. And um, they supported each other. So I'm intrigued with the theme of you know the need for the members to be you know kind of generating um, the experience and having some um, say or voice in, in what takes place. And I'm wondering if the advent of Web 2.0 has played a significant role in transforming some of these ideas because of the ability of educators to create their own electronic communities of practice or communities of interest? So the idea of community for the, for the members' sake 
um, you know, it's, it's not new with Web 2.0. Web 2.0 gives us a whole host of new ways to do that and a whole host of potential new audiences. Um, it may lower the barrier for some folks to be able to share their materials and find their community and that's, you know, really, really wonderful. Um, but I don't think we have, I don't think that, um, I don't, I mean, I think that Web 2.0 is significantly changing what we can do online, but I don't think it's yet significantly changed how we view community except that we don't have proximity to people as a barrier to be able to work from, from folks. Um, I don't know if that's a fair assessment or what your thoughts are. Well, I was going to add one thing um, kind of related. Somebody made a comment earlier about lurkers, and I think there's been some research that, you know, going back to just the old days of mailing lists in the 80s and 90s, and if you look at Wikipedia and if you look at, you know, communities, online communities now in the 2000s, that, you know, most of the people in these communities are lurkers at any particular time when you look in. You might have 10% are really, really active, and if you come back in, you know, a year later, it'll be a different, it may be a different 10%, but, um, I think there's some, I mean, over over time, people do participate at different times, and I'm not sure if, it, it, it seems to be that with different technologies, you don't change that a huge amount. Right. I think that the number of lurkers is actually larger than 90%. Yeah, it might be larger. Yeah, I think it's more like 1% to 2% um, yeah, is, are the participants, sometimes even less than one. The long tail has shown us a lot about what um, activity looks like online. Um, and and that's, we, in Tapton, we did find that we had about 10 to 20 percent of our members logging in at, in any month, um, but whether they were actively participating or um, whether they were doing more lurking um, is still something we, you know, we haven't defined it and that's what we're looking to define is what are, what's a good way to define activity in a community. Um, so yeah, and Peggy's absolutely right, lurkers are learning and passing on and that's one of the things when I do survey groups of people who have worked online, I ask, have you taken this and shared it with somebody offline? Because I think that's really powerful when you learn something in one medium and take it to another medium. So ISTE came out with a report uh, recently um, called Teacher Participation in Online Communities. Why do teachers want to participate in self-generated online communities of K-12 teachers? And there were five different reasons that they found or the primary reasons. And they were largely emotional and, and related, I think, to this idea of the, the difficulty of being uh, a, a, a beginning teacher. But the communities that they looked at had large degrees of capability for anonymous participation. So how did you decide what level you wanted there to be anonymity and at what level you wanted things to be open and transparent? When we started Tapped In way, way, way back, I'm getting out my cane and hobbling <laughs> around, um, people were really scared of the Internet. Um, and one of the things that was coming out of, of the work that was being done was if you don't allow people to be anonymous, you won't have problems. Um, anonymity makes people feel like they can do anything or say anything and not necessarily think about how it relates to themselves. Um, when you have identity, the person's actual identity, um, then they're more accountable and it builds trust, as Patty just, as Patty just reminded me. <laughs> so um, we chose, we made a design, design decision and that was part of our conditions for the community that we wanted to have people's real identities in tapped in. We didn't want people even to make up nicknames. Yeah, we didn't want people to make up nicknames um, for themselves. We wanted to have a professional space, and that's what we really strove for. As as Patty as Patty just said um, in my ear, um, we think about it. If you go to a, if you go to a conference, you can't you know you have your name on your badge, and you you know you don't usually go to a professional conference with you know 
nicknames all over. Yeah, Red Hot Mama <laughs> Teacher, we wanted to avoid. We wanted it to be professional and for people to, to be able to build trust and be responsible for, you know, and share the responsibility with each other. Right. Um, so, so that was our design decision um, way, way back in, you know, I think the Middle Ages. Um, so, and, and yeah, and that is one of the things in Second Life. And Second Life isn't a community that was designed for educators. Um, you know, Tapped In is a very small community specifically for the education professional. Um, so when you're, when you're as, as my earlier answer is, what's the purpose? What's the purpose for the audience? And who are the audience members? Um, and that's what I, we and I think about constantly when I'm looking at a community or designing a community for a different organization. I think about the purpose and you know what would be the best decisions to make. So I wonder if that does come down a little bit to also the difference between community of interest and community of practice. Because I've never, in the social networks, I've been involved in the networks. I have always kept them fully transparent and, and public. But the point that was made in the research paper was that oftentimes beginning teachers don't want their colleagues to know they're struggling or don't want to um, voice a concern or a complaint and have that get back. And I hadn't really thought about that, but it did seem to me that there might actually be a place for a little bit of anonymity. But I haven't seen it um, working well and, and wondered if either of you have seen it work well where it doesn't lead to chaos or negative well, things. We, so um, it, is, it is very true that new teachers especially don't want to be seen as struggling. I mean, you're a teacher, you're an expert, and um, I think that also including you're a teacher, you're always a learner is a very important part of the identity, but new teachers struggle with is becoming the expert that they need to be in the classroom. Um, so they don't want to be seen as having problems. Um, we, so when we were working with our large school district and listening to what they did, they were you know, concerned about um, the need for not an anonymity. Um, our teachers were in cadres or groups or cohorts and they were, um, you know, they, they sort of took the pact of when we're in our group room and we're having a discussion, it's our discussion. No one else knows about it. This is our safe space. And they had to build up a very strong bit of trust um, for their group. Um, the other thing we did, though, because there was the, well, what if there's a question that they didn't even feel comfortable asking in their group? So we created an anonymous way to ask questions for this large school district. Um, and they had, instead of Dear Abby, they had Ask Millie. <laughs> um, so they, they had their anonymous venue if they chose to use it. But it turned out that I think only one or two questions were asked anonymously after we spent time developing this very special capability. People didn't actually need it. So um, there's a story for you. <laughs> oh, I love that story because in part it reflects a lot of what a lot of us are doing, which is we're, we're thinking of what we think people are going to want. We work spend time developing it, and then it turns out it's not actually exactly what, what evolves. Right. So, yeah. And, and Naomi has a, I hope I'm saying your name right, Naomi, um, it has a good point. Even if only one question was asked anonymously, it was good to have that as a mechanism because, yes, that's supporting that one user who may not have felt like he or she could have asked that question anywhere else. So, yes, I do agree that sometimes not commonly used features are good features. Mm -hmm. So I know we're getting close to the end of the time. There are three quick things I wanted to ask about or, or mention. One was, uh, it's a quote from one of the papers, one hallmark, you say, one hallmark of a community of practice that distinguishes it from other forms of community is the ability to grow, evolve, and reproduce its membership. I've often used the phrase generative to describe that. Do you think that's the, a good word for it? Um, it sounds like a good word for it. Um, but yeah, that that is, I think I already mentioned that you know you need that new blood constantly coming into your community um, to help create the the, turn, the the tensions and to keep things exciting and to bring in new questions and, one, and grow. And one thing Patty and I were discussing earlier, the new folks often ask a lot of questions. 
and the experts have to answer them. Um, and this actually is great for the experts. If you're a new person, ask an expert a lot of questions because it allows the expert to revisit their expertise and think through it and think, is this making sense? So um, that's, that's another um, function of needing that new blood in or another purpose. Okay, so that leads me to another good sort of quick point here, which is the difficulty of balancing increasingly sophisticated users with beginners still coming in. Yeah, and that's a that's a that's another tension that can be difficult. Um, I so there are some folks who like to help all of the time, you know, and most teachers like to help all of the time because that's what they do. But some teachers are, you know, in a community to to um, get some work done for themselves. So you need to be sensitive to the folks that don't want to keep helping newbies all of the time and let them you know, not have to do that and allow the folks who really like to help people to you know, take over and, and do that because, because um, you know, in Tapton, BJ is a master at helping folks learn to use the community. BJ has been doing that for, since 1998. The help that, and, and BJ has, you know, helpers as well, and, and I see Jeff Cooper's here as well, and Jeff is a master at helping people um, learn to use Tapped In, and both of them really should be given awards, saint awards, because of their patience. Um, and if I'm, if I'm not recognizing, you know, another Tapped In help desk member by their name, Diane, I believe, helps folks all of the time, mm -hmm. too, um, you know, forgive me, but, um, I think that that's one of the things that a community director will have to manage is, you know, what, is, what should the social norm be for supporting new users? And, and providing a place for people to volunteer, like the help desk is an open place where people volunteer, the people who do want to help, and people rotate in and out of it, but providing a place for people to go if they do want to be able to provide that kind of help. So could we ask BJ and, and Jeff maybe to respond a little to the idea of uh, when, a <coughs> excuse me, when a network has the ability for you to be helpful, maybe visibly helpful, or, or paths, pathways for being helpful, do you need any kind of um, extrinsic incentives or motivation, or is the intrinsic motivation of being helpful enough to, to provide for a group of people who want to, to be in that role? And BJ, you're on the phone. I'm going to give Jeff the mic as well. I think that am I talking or is Jeff talking? We can hear you, but Jeff's not talking. It looks like he's going to—he's typing right now. I, I, Jeff has a a mic. Um, I think that that you can help people by leading them through a tour and having them be um, interactive and do all of the things and ask for questions and they will do a wonderful job but the trick is to get them to come back and to um, do the, uh, use the features independently. Uh, some people just need a lot of scaffolding, a lot of support uh, over a period of time. And um, if you can give that, then that person will continue to come back. And, and what about the person who becomes the mentor, the helper, or the guide? What kinds of uh, rewards or incentives or motivation helps to create that kind, that group of people who want to help? I think that is really an intrinsic. Uh, motivation. Uh, the people can become members of the help desk uh, and be labeled as help desk volunteers. They can lead their own discussions, uh, but all of that is done on a volunteer basis. There are no extrinsic rewards for that. So I'm almost wondering if it's the case of, of not putting barriers in front of people. You know, Judy and Patty, is it is it the case that when uh, a community allows for that kind of growth, that it will naturally occur, or do you have to shepherd that somehow? Well, one of the things that I think when you're creating an online community, a large scale one, you have to think about the roles and responsibilities, um, and 
when we pay folks, um, I, I I would never ask a volunteer to do something that's a paid job. Um, and I think there are some janitorial kinds of things that <laughs> you have to do in an online community. And I would never ask for a volunteer to, to do, you know, anything that was tiresome that they didn't want to do. And, you know, your volunteers are volunteering to, I mean, they're, they're, we, when we created Help Desk, people signed up and became apprentices to learn how to help people online. This was, you know, back in the late 90s. Um, and people wanted to learn this. And then they had this skill and they wanted to practice it to get better at it. And yes, teachers are very motivated to help learners. Um, that's why they went in. And it's very rewarding to help people online because you are introducing them to a whole new world. It's all opening up and um, it's very exciting. Um, so the janitorial stuff, you have to pay for. Um, but that's been our philosophy. Um, I've put in my own fair share of volunteer hours in the community because that's what you have to do. Um, I, you know, we can't, unfortunately, I mean, Captain, and I'm guessing that most communities can't pay um, the cost it would that it, you know, the cost it would be for to have a full-time staff member always online helping, or you know, many people online helping during busy times. Um, so that's been our philosophy. So um, did I miss it? What what constitutes janitorial work that you felt like you needed to pay for? Um, well, I mean, there's well. There's different things. Um, we've worked over the years, and now systems are a lot better in terms of keeping track of um, nitty-gritty details. We used to have to do a lot of stats and mm -hmm. and things like that, and and that's you know not janitorial work. Well, maybe it is statistics. I don't know. Um, <laughs> depends on who you talk to, but. Um, those were some of the things just to keep track, to send out emails when it was necessary um, for you know special groups that needed mm -hmm. reminders to get online and you know really keeping track um, for organizations. And I would say, I mean personally, Patty, I do a lot of janitorial work. Right. right. We get new new tenants who join. I create the buildings. I create the rooms. You know, I make sure that things are working for them and that if they have questions, I can help them, you know, figure out what they need to, to you know, make their, make their activities work. And so I, I kind of do a lot of that. Great. And to help an organization think through their whole process and their whole design, that would be something we would, you know, pay or have a paid staff member doing. Um, but when you're wanting to have people helping online all of the time, it's very important and a community can't exist without it. But unfortunately, the costs are, I mean, could be very large and they're recurring um, continuously. So I sure didn't leave this much time for questions. Were there any questions that didn't get asked? Did anybody want to ask a question that we haven't discussed? I do like to finish on time so that people know that you, you're done with your hour and, um, and life moves on because there's always something every day. But did anybody have something they really wanted to bring up? Oh, the future of Tapped In. What is it Keith Smith <laughs> wants to know? In 30 seconds or less, huh? <laughs> BJ's got a lot of exciting things going on right now um, with the <laughs> Thanks, Terry. Um, BJ's got a lot of exciting things going on with the new Learning Hub. Um, and we are continuing to work to develop, to develop um, how to study online communities. Um, so TAPTIN will continue to evolve. And you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're working to make it stay. And we're working to find you know, new solutions. Money. The question is money. Um, well, as Steve actually knows, we're uh, submitting a proposal right now to the National Science Foundation uh, in actually due in November to get a bunch of money to study online activity and tapped in and also other communities. Right. 
and Steve's very interested for Learn Central for what we're doing for, for how to look at um, online community activities and, um, you know, what it all means when you're interacting online. And how you can better support the activity once you kind of have ways to look at it more closely and see what kind of activities are more productive online. Right, and how the activities relate to the outcomes specifically for an organization. We could do another Futures of Learning talk on that someday if you're interested. Well, I'm absolutely interested. Okay, I'm clapping now for the two of you and for BJ and for those of you who've come. And that clapping is not just for tonight, but it's for uh, all the work over a significant period of time in trying to both understand and, and move uh, this kind of work forward. So I really appreciate your being here tonight. Appreciate the um, the insight. Appreciate all that I felt I learned in reading the articles, and do hope that we'll do this again. Don't forget coming up some fun activities, including Esther uh, Wasiski tomorrow night, and um, and lots of other good things. As you leave the session, you will get a survey. The survey will pop up in your browser, and if you're willing to fill it out, it sure helps us. And uh, thank you for doing that. And thanks, Judy. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, BJ. And thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Any final words? Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Yes, and um, folks, I just put up our email addresses. If you have questions that you'd like to send, please do. Um, and we and do take a look at our papers. Thank you. Okay. Great job, everybody. Uh, really wonderful. Uh, appreciate uh, the discussion tonight. I'm going to stick around for a couple of minutes, but then uh, within a few minutes I'll kick everybody out of the room so the recording can process. Uh, feel free to go. Um, and Judy and Patty, I know that you've taken valuable time, so feel free just to exit out when you're ready to leave. Thanks, everyone. Yes, and the recording will be up by tomorrow, wherever you saw the link to this event, either at futureofeducation.com or learncentral.org. We'll have a recording. and. Uh, it includes the full Illuminate recording, an audio recording, and a chat log. And you can, if you'd like, before you leave tonight, you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the whiteboard if there was something that you felt you wanted.